Aloha. This is Catherine Cruz. Mahalo for joining us here on The Conversation. Governor Josh Green has just delivered his second State of the State Address. We'll have the highlights. Help for Maui and housing are priorities. Small businesses get a break on the deadline to apply for federal help because of the wildfires. And a cookbook author turned activist. The pandemic spurs a passion to protect and preserve Chinatowns across the country. And preserving the musical transition of the indigenous sounds of Mindanao in the southern Philippines. You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Governor Josh Green gave his second State of the State address this morning. Uh, HPR News Director Bill Dorman joins us now uh, with some of the highlights from this speech. Good morning. Yeah, good morning, Catherine. You know, not uh, on the one hand, not a lot of surprises there. We wouldn't really expect that. Interesting, the theme of this, and it was actually titled uh, Coming Together to Heal. Uh, as a uh, as a theme, certainly that, that captured a lot of it. Um, but also it was interesting the way he wove Maui into some broader issues facing the state as well. Everything from the affordability of living here on any island uh, to health care challenges to other lingering challenges that the, the state has. But, of course, the focus was clearly on Maui and very specifically a lot of attention to housing on Maui and a familiar theme for him, the need to convert short-term rentals to longer-term housing. He says that this can be done with some encouragement. And also, if you take a closer look at the math. Let me break down how it is on Maui. There are 27,000 short-term rental units on that island alone. And if we can dedicate just 10% of these homes for displaced Lahaina families, we can house everyone. We'll cover the fair market value of each rental for two years. We'll also provide the property tax exemption that the mayor and his council very, very thoughtfully passed just weeks ago to give an exemption from property tax for 18 months to house those who participate. This is the right thing to do, and I urge everyone out there to join us in offering their homes, if they can, to house our people. Now, if not enough partners step forward to join us as we approach March 1st, believe me when I say this, I'm going to put our people first, and I will be forced to declare a moratorium on all short-term rentals in West Maui until we find enough housing for the displaced families. And there you have it in terms of that, uh, you know, the, the threat that has been there and, uh, again, the, the deadline uh, attached on that in terms of March 1st. But housing, again, a, a theme, not just with the conversion of, uh, of rentals, but also with attention to why housing costs are so high in, in Hawaii, as he, he said at a, a slightly later point, um, even before the fires on Maui, state faced an urgent shortage of affordable housing and pointed out some facts related to that that a lot of people may not focus on very much. Housing costs in Hawaii are among the most expensive in the nation. Our state is such a desirable destination and such a profitable and profitable investment for so many that people from around the world have purchased property to hold as investments or rent as short-term rentals to visitors, making on average, and these are individuals who invest, four times what they would if they rented the property simply to one of our local families. Right now, 52% of all short-term rentals in Hawaii are owned by non-state residents, and 27% of short-term rentals are of short-term rental owners own 20 or more units. Take a minute to digest that. 52% of all short-term rentals are rented by people outside of Hawaii and making four times as much as if they were renting to some someone that we love who lost a home. And again, just some of the the facts of housing and the statistics behind some of this. Yeah, and you know, he has been uh, uh, dangling incentives, right, for folks to please get off the fence and please offer uh, 
you know, long-term rentals versus short-term rentals to our community. Uh, but he talked about amnesty for taxes, you know, capital mm-hmm. gains, right? If you're willing to sell your property to us, uh, you know, we will forego uh, excise tax, capital gains tax. You know, he, you know, had he had a whole list. You know, it's interesting. And in that area and in a couple of others, he uh, bent over backwards to insert language that was different than, than some of the prepared text, thanking the legislature in particular he, uh, before the uh, because the legislature stepped up at one point with your guidance uh, uh, approval. For, when he talked about approval for Cal Hawley's thanking uh, the legislature for appropriating money, um, again, part of that that political part of this recognizing that heading into a new legislative session while he can declare a lot of things from the executive branch he also needs to bring along the legislature in this right and uh, you know the the one thing that surprised me was this uh, $25 fee on visitors <laughs> when they check in yeah it, interesting and and again a degree of specificity here of uh, because this is again second second year of the biennium last session there was a round to let's get this visitor impact fee whatever you uh, whatever you call it and now, as he said, this is this is a simplified version, just straight up. You know what, twenty-five dollar fee on visitors when they arrive. Um, and he also said, uh, in this, uh, we're going to invest these funds. And he inserted the way you think we should invest them. And then he listed some examples of beach preservation, fire breaks, other prevention measures uh, to avoid fires. But also said that uh, open to uh, other proposals. Increasing uh, the the transient accommodation tax. Yes, he said uh, move. You don't have a heart attack. Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. Because uh, you you raise the hotel room tax. Uh, uh, but interestingly, you know, I, I know his prepared text called this a climate impact fee. Uh, you know, because he did talk about using that money for fire breaks and mm. preventative measures. So it's interesting if that's what the bill uh, titles will. Will reflect well again thematically. You look for things in state of the state and between state of the state and opening day of the legislature, where there's going to be set up the the legislative session. And I think this idea of setting up longer term there is the short term dealing with Maui and the recovery and all of that, but there are longer term issues um, for environmental vulnerability around the state that absolutely have to be addressed, and th- those are expensive propositions so putting in a funding mechanism uh is is part of this and and we'll see where this uh, where this goes some of the ideas you know they f- they float out in speeches and then the rest of the session um take the form of bills and legislation and we see what the discussion is yeah and you know it's five and a half months you know since the fires will be coming up on the six month anniversary i know there is concern that you know in about a year year and a half you know a lot of those federal agencies will pull back and th- and then what because the state has to pull itself up and fund some of these uh, initiatives themselves. Yeah, and finding, again, finding a mechanism that can open up the way to have shared funding for this. And again, you could make the argument that for visitors coming here, it's not just, oh, here's another tax going on. But if you link this to this is helping the environment of Hawaii survive and and go through um, again address some of the vulnerabilities that it, it is spreading that uh, spreading that kuleana to, to visitors uh, as well. One thing that did surprise me is uh, I expected maybe a little more updated figures on how many families that are in hotels have been moved into longer longer term housing. I was hoping that he would give us a, a, a fresher update on that. My guess is that come the six-month anniversary, we're going to have all kinds of stats and figures and updates, but uh, we'll see. Yeah, today was definitely for themes and to, and to set out that longer term. Yeah, as I'm sure the counties will be reassessing where we're at uh, six months later. The feds, you know, whether it's Army Corps of Engineers, where we're at on building the homes, where we're at on uh, temporary homes, you know, all the community groups that are trying to set up places, but yeah. Uh, all very interesting. So, yeah, that, that's more to come, I guess. And all a very long-term process, which we know is the case with Maui. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bill. We have been joined this morning by our news director, Bill Dorman, with some of the highlights from Governor Josh Green's second State of the State address.
This is The Conversation on Statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Today we're spotlighting Hilo's historic architecture. We're looking for a colorful two-story structure on Kamehameha Avenue, reflective of architect William C. Fuhrer. It was built over a century ago as an outgrowth of the original shoten, the Japanese word for store, at a price tag of $25,000. It was first owned by a Hiroshima native who immigrated to Honolulu in 1891 and sought his fortune on the Big Island. He was able to purchase the Gila Wetlands. The store was built on uh, from U.S. government and under specific conditions. The new build had to be made of concrete as opposed to the usual wooden structures built in the area and completed in a year. The building was listed as a state historic site in 18, uh, 1989 and added to the National Historic Register in 1991. The building was so solidly built that it survived the April 1st, 1946 tsunami that devastated much of Hilo. So for today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us the name of this historic building? Call 808-941-3689 or toll-free 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. First one to get it right gets a reusable HPR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing parents and children experiencing homelessness with opportunities to secure housing, including Family Promise of Hawaii. NareedHawaii.com. This Saturday, HPR presents Tommy Morrison live at the Atherton Studio. Morrison is principal bassoonist for the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra. For tickets and more info, visit hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. Support for HPR comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, celebrating 75 years, offering a Master of Accounting program. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. You know, there are just a few days left for Maui residents impacted by the August wildfires to file for federal assistance with the U.S. Small Business Administration. The SBA has extended its deadline for personal and business loan applications several times. This latest extension is what's remaining of a 45-day grace period that began on December 11th. The Conversations Russell Subiano sat down with SBA Public Information Officers Cynthia Cowell and John Crowley in our studios this morning to get their perspective on the recovery process on the Valley Isle. Do you have an update on the amount of people that have filed with the SBA so far? So far, we've received many loan applications. I don't know exactly how many we received, but we're continuing to process them. We did switch our processing software. That switch has gone smoothly. We're finally getting new numbers in, new reports. So far, we've approved over $290 million, and that's for businesses and homeowners. 187 million is for homeowners, the rest went to businesses. A lot of the businesses who suffered economic damages are still hesitant to file their applications because one, they don't want a loan, and two, they're not really sure if we can help them. And the only way we know if we can help you is if you go ahead and apply. The deadline ended, the deadline passed on December 11th. 
we're currently in a grace period where we will accept applications late with no explanation needed at this point. But that's only for the rest of this week. So it's important to get the applications in. If you are a business that wasn't necessarily in Lahaina or Kula, you can still get economic damages because, as you recall, the whole island shut down for right. a while. Right. And that's very hard, especially on our small businesses. So we do have these economic injury disaster loans of up to $2 million to help a business stay in business. It's just working capital. We also have physical disaster loans for homeowners, renters, and businesses. For homeowners, we can lend up to $500,000 to repair or replace their primary residence. If you have an Ohana residence that your family was living in, you can also apply for that as a home. If you had rentals, you can apply as a business for up to $2 million to replace an apartment building or a rental unit you had. If you lost your tenants for any reason, either the apartment burned down or they, they just decided to leave, the economic injury disaster loans can be helpful with that too. Now for renters and homeowners, we can also lend up to $100,000 to replace their personal property, and that includes cars. There were a lot of cars lost yeah. in the fire. So the, these are all considerations that a homeowner or renter needs to make. John, did you have anything to add to that? Well, I think the important thing is just being able to know where to go to get information. Yeah. There's three ways that we provide that information. People can call, they can click, or they can come by. I'd like to share the 800 number, 1-800-659-2955. And then people can also click by going online to lending.sba.gov, or they can visit in person and come by at a Honolulu address at 521 Alamoana Boulevard, that's suite number 201. They can also go to the Disaster Recovery Center in Lahaina Civic Center. We also have an office in Kihei at 590 Lapoa Parkway. And then in Kahului, at the library, 90 School Street. So those are three ways that people can access information and apply if they feel it's a good fit for them. On December 11th, the SBA granted a 45-day grace period so that Maui residents impacted by the fire can still apply for disaster loan assistance. And like you said, Cynthia, that grace period expires this Thursday, January 25th. Compared to other disasters, how has the recovery process been in Maui? Well, Hawaii is a unique situation. This disaster has been in the forefront on White House calls daily. And so we know that the eyes of Washington are upon us. Usually after a deadline, we allow a 14-day grace period. This time it's 45 days. There were two deadline extensions. So we're, we're trying to get the money out as quickly as we can and trying to get uh, the information out more than the money that there is help available. Now, if you are a business owner, you may not ha even be located on Maui. You may also still be eligible for the economic injury disaster loan. Let's say you're a manufacturer in Honolulu that sells a great amount of your product to Maui hotels and the Maui hotel shut down. You may be able to recoup some of those losses. It would be a, uh, an economic injury disaster loan you're not going to make a profit off it, but you will be able to maintain your obligations with an economic injury disaster loan. So you can keep your employees in employed and you can pay your mortgage and your bills. So it's not just the residents of Maui. It's also any business that had ties to Maui that might have been impacted. That's correct. Okay. And I interviewed FEMA a couple months ago, and they mentioned that the SBA is the first step. Is that accurate? And if so, have you had to kind of clear that up with folks coming in for assistance? Well, we recommend that everybody register with FEMA first. Well, okay. first file your insurance claim. Okay. We can only help with uninsured losses or underinsured. Okay. But you register with FEMA. If you're a homeowner or renter, FEMA may refer you to SBA. And that's generally just based on numbers, what your income is the size of your family, et cetera. 
when you are referred to SBA by FEMA, it's very important that you go ahead and complete the application. I know a lot of people don't want a loan, especially nowadays, but this is the help that we have available is FEMA funds, SBA funds, and then local assistance. So we are encouraging everyone, if you are referred by FEMA, make sure that you apply with SBA. And then we don't usually try and say apply to FEMA first or apply to SBA first. It's kind of a, you got to do everything all at once. And, and it can be confusing if you want to put steps on it. Step one, insurance. Step two, FEMA. Step three, SBA. John, maybe you can answer this question. In the early days, there were many misconceptions about the SBA process and what kind of power FEMA has when it comes to property. It seems like many of those have subsided. Have you noticed any other misconceptions that you feel might be needed to be clarified for survivors? To be honest, I think I would defer to Cynthia if she has any thoughts on that. She was here August 10th, just two days after the wildfires. So she has firsthand knowledge of what happened in those early days and then as it's progressed through the, the recovery period. Well, some of the rumors we heard at the beginning were that FEMA wants your land. FEMA does not take your land. They don't condemn, they don't have that power. SBA will use your property as collateral, as with any mortgage you get. And the rates are so much lower than a regular bank loan. If you don't want to get SBA help, that's not a problem. You don't have to apply for SBA if you don't want to. But this is the money that's available. And because we're coming to the end of the line here, some people still haven't heard back from their insurance. They don't know for certain how much they're going to be able to get. So my suggestion is go ahead and apply with SBA, get the application in, get it approved, and then you don't have to take any money. You just say, I want to hold off. And then let's say a year from now you find out, oh my gosh, I got to replace the entire foundation and I did not count on that. There's that money that you have to fall back on. So it's, it's very important to just take that step, take the application, complete the application. You can come into any of our four centers across the state if you're in Honolulu if you're if you're a homeowner or renter who came to Honolulu to escape the fires and you still haven't applied for SBA you can come into the Honolulu Disaster Loan Outreach Center or Business Recovery Center now it is a business recovery center that doesn't mean you have to be a business we'll still take homeowners and renters it's at 521 Alamoana Boulevard Suite 201 it's in the International Trade Zone And we have our Business Recovery Center at 590 Lipoa Parkway in Kihei. And businesses can go in there, or they can also go into the Lahaina Civic Center to the Disaster Recovery Center. There are lots of options. We do have a dedicated Disaster Loan Outreach Center in Kahului at the library. No appointment necessary, just go in. If they apply for the loan, they don't have to take the loan, but to have approval is a good idea. And then you were saying that if they don't take the loan, down the road they find out that they're going to need more money to be able to repair or replace things on their property. They can take the loan at that point. How how long does the loan approval last? It's a year. And one other good thing about the program, and this just came in immediately before the fire started, is you have 12 months to take a first draw. And you do not accrue any interest or any payments due until 12 months from the day you take your first disbursement. So let's say you you decided to wait because people can't build right now. They can't go home. Some people are starting to go home, but there's still that hesitancy to go into the burn zone. Your house may be perfectly fine, but it's kind of easy to go in there and, you know, feel what happened in the air, you know. So if you're staying away for a while, we understand that. It's going to be time very soon for you to go home. I know the governor is encouraging people to go home. And it's kind of like falling off a horse. you got to get back on it. you got to get back in the house. But we know people can't start building right away. And so we can hold off on your first disbursement. So, you know, if you don't take any money, it's no skin off your nose. 
you just can say cancel the loan we'll cancel the loan and then you still have some time to come back and say hey let's let's look into this one more yeah. time okay. and then we can reinstate the loan cynthia cowell john crowley really appreciate your time mahalo mahalo russell thank you that was the Small Business Administration, Cynthia Cowell and John Crowley, talking with HPR's Russell Sabiano. Maui residents impacted by the August, uh, August wildfires have until this week, Thursday, January 25th, to file for federal assistance with the SBA. We'll have a link to the information on the conversation page of our website after the show. Do you love public radio? Would you like to join the team that puts your favorite HPR programs on the air? We may have the perfect job for you. HPR is hiring a full-time board operator. Audio editing and broadcasting experience are required, and skills as an on-air announcer are a plus. If this job opportunity is music to your ears, visit hawaiipublicradio.org jobs to learn more. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting David Hockney, Perspective Should Be Reversed, prints from the collections of Jordan D. Schnitzer and his family foundation on view now, honolulumuseum.org. activist later in life was not on the radar of cookbook author Grace Young, but she proudly proclaimed that title as she talked to us from her apartment in New York City recently. Young is in town this week to work with students at the Leeward Community College Culinary Institute. She will be featured in a free public talk with local chef Robin Maie this weekend. The two are honored with James Beard Awards and will be on stage talking about saving and preserving Chinatowns across the country. Here's Young. Well, at the start of the pandemic, I was planning on writing another cookbook. I had just turned 64, and my life just took this unbelievable turn. I became a new person to myself and others. I really stepped away from my life as a cookbook author and a culinary professional, and as I watched New York City's Chinatown empty out and become a ghost town because of the irresponsible rhetoric coming out of Washington that COVID was China virus and Kung flu. People were afraid to go to Chinatown. They thought if they went to Chinatown, they could catch COVID. And so as I saw Chinatown become a ghost town, I started doing posts on social media and I reached out to media that I knew and got onto public radio in New York City and tried to get word out to New Yorkers that Chinatown was perfectly safe to come to to eat and to shop. And I became an activist. And about a year later, Grub Street called me the accidental voice of Chinatown. Well, now you have made it your mission then to go around talking about the importance of preserving Chinatowns across the country. Yeah, for the first year, it was really all about New York City's Chinatown, and that's where all my energies went. But I'm born and raised in San Francisco, so I was very aware and monitoring what was happening in San Francisco's Chinatown. So actually, that first year, I was also doing posts about some of my favorite businesses in San Francisco's Chinatown and Oakland's Chinatown, and I have friends in Honolulu, so I was sort of trying to keep my radar up for what was happening. And then I started speaking up for Chinatowns all across the country because it wasn't just unique to New York City's Chinatown that businesses were shunned. It was happening all across the United States, and there was anti-Asian hate crimes. There was just less foot traffic and tourism in Chinatowns that depend so much on tourism like San Francisco, Boston, New York. So I became a spokesperson for America's Chinatown. Well, 
It was interesting for me to learn about your journey because I went on a trip and I visited those cities and went to Chinatowns in those places and learned the history of their footprint and the contraction (laughs) of Chinatowns in some of these metropolitan areas and was really intrigued about how, you know, yeah, one group came in, another group was pushed out. So it was interesting to go to the Tenement Museum in New York and, you know, was familiar with the San Francisco Chinatown because I used to take the 30 Stockton bus through there when I was uh, going to college. And so really got a feel for, you know, these places and to learn about Boston and Chicago and and Seattle. Fascinating history. So many people think Chinatowns tell the story of Chinese Americans, but really every Chinatown tells the American story, the American immigrant story. And in New York City's Chinatown, long before the Chinese ever arrived, the Irish lived there, the Italians, Germans, Jews. The first tenement building in New York City is on Mott Street, on 65 Mott Street, and it was built in 1824. So Chinatowns tell the story of this country. And you have a connection to the merchants of Chinatown in San Francisco, right? You had relatives who owned shops. Yes. I had many relatives growing up who had businesses in Chinatown. I don't have any, no one in the family has business in Chinatown anymore. But when I was growing up, it was really this, I grew up with this wonderful small town feeling. I could walk through Chinatown with my father and mother and every few steps. Somebody would call out my dad's name, or my dad would bump into a friend or someone he worked with. My aunt and uncle owned a restaurant called Sana on Clay Street. I have other cousins that had one of the oldest restaurants on Washington called Sun Hung Hurong. And my godmother um, and her husband owned uh, one of the biggest supermarkets in San Francisco's Chinatown, Wing Sung Churong. Well, you know, it's just an evolving landscape, you know, and even here during COVID, we lost several shops in our Chinatown. Charhut Sut is one, and I remember going on a walking tour in Honolulu's Chinatown, and the guide had pointed out this is one of the few remaining families where the business was passed down, you know, from parent to child and another generation, and It was so sad to see it close because, you know, I never got to say goodbye, right? Because you just develop a relationship with those merchants. Yes. Actually, this is what inspired my activism. Before the pandemic, if you had asked me how I felt about Chinatown, I would have said I loved it. But it wasn't until the pandemic hit and I saw New York City lose some of its great legacy businesses that had been part of Chinatown for 40, 50, 65 years, that I realized that I had taken it for granted. And I assumed that Chinatown would always be Chinatown. But when we started losing these really old businesses, it shook me to my core. And it made me realize that all these businesses weren't just about the great food they served or the wonderful produce they sold. They were anchors in the community, and without them, there is no Chinatown. And adjacent to Chinatown in New York City is Little Italy, and there is only one store left from the way Little Italy used to be when it was a vibrant Italian community, and that's Di Paolo. But there are plenty of Italian restaurants, but they're all for tourists. And I suddenly realized the exact same thing can happen to Chinatown, where we lose all the core businesses and what we're left with is just kind of faux Chinatown. And in the last 18 months, we got a burger shop, a pizza joint, some espresso shops, and I know, you know, Chinatown has to evolve and there needs to be different kinds of businesses, but if we continue to hemorrhage and lose the old businesses that hold our memories, and yet instead bubble tea and pizza, we lose Chinatown, and we lose ourselves. 
Yeah, it's the fa- that fabric of the community that that um, holds. Uh, like you said, it's an immigrant story, uh, not just the the Chinese story, uh, but all these different groups. You know, I mean, I learned about the the Greek merchants downtown. You know, uh, in Honolulu. Uh, you know, thanks to the uh, downtown, you know, Heritage Center. Uh, so yeah, important stories to hang on to and to to share. Yes, and to remind the public that's really been my mission that um, we need to show up and we need to go to our local Chinatown, eat in the restaurants, shop in the markets and stores because um, without our patronage. We will, we will lose Chinatown. And so to ensure Chinatown will exist for future generations, it's really important that we support these little mom-and-pop businesses. And, and that's the other thing that I didn't really, I had never thought about it before, but Chinatowns are made up of only family-owned mom-and-pop businesses. And in New York City, there is no other neighborhood left in Manhattan, south of 96th Street, that is solely made, um, solely made up of mom and pop. Everything else has big chain stores, supermarkets like Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, Target. And when you go into Chinatown, you realize it's a reminder of our humanity. And during the pandemic, so many of us, relied on, had to rely on buying things on the internet because it was safer and it was more convenient. But that's a soulless way of purchasing our goods. And when you go to Chinatown and you see these little mom and pop operations that are open seven days a week and they work 10, 12, 14 hours. And when you observe the grit and determination these guys give their jobs, right, the back-breaking work, they show up every single day. And during the pandemic, so many weeks and months, there were no customers, but they still came every day and put in those long hours. It makes you realize, I'd rather support them. <laughs> and and it, it's so much nicer to have that human connection where the shopkeeper, you know, knows that you like the baby bok choy, or <laughs> now there's a siren going through right past the window right now. <laughs> yes, we, we have the sounds of the city in the background, uh, but, you know, what you say is true about that neighborhood store. I mean, this week I was, I'm happy to say that I got my Szechuan peppercorns and my little uh, uh, dragon figurines uh, to bring in the Chinese New Year, um, but yeah, you have to think, um, you know, when your favorite uh, restaurant closes down, um, the void that it leaves. Yes, and for so many people, you've had your good times and bad times. These restaurants have comforted you throughout your life. And so often right now, we're all watching our pennies because everything is more and more expensive. But when you go to Chinatown, you can eat like a king. And for shopping for food, it's the same thing. So it's a wonderful thing to realize that we have community. And, and to support those low mom-and-pop businesses makes everyone's life richer. And that was cookbook author and activist Grace Young, who is in town to teach a cooking class to students at the Culinary Institute at Leeward Community College. You can hear more from her this Thursday at the Mission Memorial Auditorium at Honolulu Hale. Uh, Chef Robin Mai will moderate a free public talk entitled Fighting to Preserve and Protect America's Chinatowns. HPR presents the return of our Mele Hawaii Performance Series. Performing live at our Atherton studio in Honolulu, Kamaha'o Haumea Thronas, Nathan Aviao, 
the Makaha Sons and Ledwardka Apana. For tickets and more info, visit hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. Bunions, hammer toes, calluses, and more. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with an expert about the best way to keep your feet happy and when you might need to see a foot specialist. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. And now it's time to build out the answer to today's backyard quiz. Earlier we told you about a colorful concrete structure located in Hilo. It's home to retail shops, commercial offices, and listed as a state historic site since 1989. It was added to the National Historic Register in 1991. The two-story building was constructed in 1912 as a second site for the Hata Family Store to sell Japanese silks, kimonos, as well as Eastern souvenirs and provisions. The price tag was $25,000. Uh, $25,000, a large sum at the time. And unlike wooden structures of those days, it has survived two major tsunamis. Sadanosuke Hata was the name of the Japanese merchant who was the patriarch of the Hilo business that branched out to Honolulu and Japan. It's a nod to the longtime Hata family and the business Wai Hata, which you see the trucks driving around town. So now the next time you walk along Kamehameha Avenue, you'll know the story behind the S Hata building, which is the answer to today's backyard quiz. Uh, and our winner today, Sherry from the Big Island. She got it right. That's our quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org. When you support HPR, you help shine the spotlight on Hawaii's next generation of musicians. How long have you been playing the violin? I've been playing for about seven years. I got my violin for Christmas when I was six, and then I started playing probably a month after. Hear from local students every Tuesday on HPR 2's Classical Pacific. I'd say just number one thing for really any musician, but um, even percussionists too, it's really just all about persistence and exactness. There will be times where, you know, you kind of get down about it, but there's always a light around the corner. Help HBR uplift Hawaii's youngest musicians. Donate at hawaiipublicradio.org. instruments don't always get the spotlight, but today we showcase drums and gongs in Filipino culture. HPR reporter Cassie Ordonio joins us now. Good morning. Good morning, Kathy. I'm super excited to talk to you about kulintang music. And what's it called? Kulintang. Kulintang. Okay. I also had to practice it even though I'm Filipino. <laughs> I'm still learning my own culture <laughs> one day at a time, but... It's interesting. This Oahu-based musician wants to preserve the musical tradition of kulintang music, and that's the indigenous sounds of Mindanao in the southern part of the Philippines. And Ronald Carrion has been playing kulintang music since 2004. He learned from the late Danny Kalinduyan, who passed away in 2016, and he was committed to the perpetuation of his cultural traditions of Mindanao which is still in the southern part of the Philippines. And kulintong music is an ensemble of gongs and drums. This music was played at festivals, weddings, and other cultural events as well. There's about five to six instruments, actually about five instruments, but I got to see three of them at his home studio. And the kulintong is the instrument itself. It's a row of eight small kettle-shaped gongs uh, that have different tunings that have more of like a high-pitched sound. And the agong, is the two giant gongs that are kind of, they sound more like a bass, so they have like a deeper tone to it. And there's also, they're also, um, there's also the goblet-shaped drum that makes the tapping sound to the rhythm of the beat. And there's two others. There's one that's kind of like a timing beat drum, and the other one is um, four kettle-shaped drums to kind of add more to the ensemble. But the three kulintong instruments that I got to hear when I interviewed Ronald Carrion, um, all of the instruments sound like this.
I like that. So it was interesting to see all of that all together, and this was my first time actually getting to see the instruments before. And this is the fun fact. So Ronald Carrion teaches a class right now. It's a, a class on Philippine Ensemble at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and it's the first time in 15 years that the class is being offered. Now Carrion gets to pass down those traditions he learned from his teacher, Danny Kalanduyan, to his students. And Kulintong, it's a pre-colonial music. It was never colonized by European explorers. So if you hear some Filipino traditional music, it's not really traditional. It's kind of a, a fusion of both traditional but also Spanish influence. So you got the rondala, for example. So that's kind of heavily Spanish influence with the guitar and whatnot. But the indigenous music of Mindanao, which has been very successful of keeping and preserving its culture, has more of the gongs and the drums. And like we were talking earlier mm-hmm. outside the studio, it does sound very similar to um, the music in Indonesia and Malaysia. Yes. So when you hear that chime music, it you could kind of see it's more in the Southeast Asia region. Um, now that we mentioned that Kulintong is um, uh, this gong chime that's seen throughout Southeast Asia, like Indonesia and Malaysia, the music is considered an ancient tradition that predates the influences of Hinduism, Buddhism, and Christianity. But Kulintong music has changed over time. The more people find out about it, the more they incorporate their own styles like hip hop and other genres. I really hope that my students have that interest and that it comes up in the class because all of my students, when they come to learn from me, they're already like a fully formed person with their own uh, interests and tastes, goals, and I hope that they see Kulintang as something that can help propel them for these desires and goals and something that can maybe inform or participate in their aesthetic uh, because that is a conversation that I love to have and it's a conversation that I think might be intimidating for some Kulintang teachers because we all agree that that this tradition is precious and sometimes there's a fear that by allowing uh, people to take a license with the tradition that it opens the door to erasing the tradition but it's my belief that we can walk and chew gum at the same time I try to empower my students to 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 learn the tradition and not be afraid to put some of themselves into it uh, and the only thing I require from them is to take accountability I love that thought yeah but you know learn the tradition but you have some license to Great. And you are, we're now seeing that Kulintong music is being infused to hip hop. Uh, I'm not too sure if you're familiar with Ruby Abara. She is actually a California based Ilocano musician. I think she's Ilocano Filipino musician. She raps a lot. But um, they're Karian's. Um, House of Gongs. It's like their own uh, music that cultivates these artists to do Kulintong music. They actually did a remix of uh, Ruby Abaro's hip-hop music, and um, I don't have it on here, but you can actually hear some of the drums. I think it's called the kabaka. That's the tapping noise that you heard earlier, where um, if people know Ruby Abara, like kind of having that beat and then having um, the traditional beat is woven into it. But I love how he says take accountability for what you're putting in because when he was teaching his students, he wanted to get his uh, students' hands on the instruments as fast as possible. And this is what he learned from the late Kalanduyan because with Kulintang music, the, the trick is to to listen to it, but also to imitate. So they're imitating what your teacher does. So if your teacher is making um, a tapping noise or a rhythm to the beat, you have to follow that. And that's how it kind of perpetuates to the other instruments. So uh, for example, when he was teaching at the University of Hawaii, which the class started about maybe a week or two ago, one student walks in and then he teaches him one rhythm in the Kulintong instrument itself. After he learns that another student walks in, he tells his student, the first student, to teach the second student to learn the rhythm. And then he moves on to the agong, for example. And as the students keep trickling in, now they're all playing the Kulintong music. Mm, interesting. So this is all part of ethnomusicology, right? <laughs> it is. And um, it's it's interesting that it is the first time in 15 years that Kulintong is being um, offered at the University of Hawaii. And um, 
Carrion and his wife Lydia, they are the founders of House of Gong. It's a creative space for cultivating Kulintong artists and cultural practitioners. They also have an independent record label called Gong's Away Music. Uh, their core program is called Gongster's Paradise. They would host festivals in North America to perform Kulintong music. So Kulintong music uses art to help Filipinos in the diaspora to gain a sense of identity. Ronald Carrion says he hopes people will discover Kulintong music and integrate it into their daily lives. Music is one of those things that reminds us that life is more than just survival. And it helps us have, to have a rich life. So, and that, that's that's what I want for anybody that's fortunate enough to to pursue it. And I think Kulintang needs its time in the sun. It's one of these cultural aspects that helped that helped these communities retain their identity. Sometimes Kulintang music is referred to as a music of resistance because. We're talking about communities that are still living their indigenous ways, you know, even up till now with all the changes in the world. And that's something to be valued. That's so interesting. And what about actually making these instruments? Are they easy to find, these gongs and drums? These are something that's not as easy as it was before. So the gongs are made of metal, but now they're made of brass. But now it's becoming a little bit more harder to create. Now they're using recycled metal items to create the gongs. And for the drum, for example, the goblet-shaped drum is actually made of the trunk of a coconut tree. Mm. And the top part is either goat skin or lizard skin. But they, um, a lot of the indigenous uh, Filipinos in Minden now have to get creative on how they create their instruments. Interesting. All right. Well, thank you so much. It's fascinating. Thanks for having me. We've been talking with HBR reporter Cassie Ordonio about perpetuating Filipino Kulintang music. You can read more of her stories on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. does it for us today. Tomorrow, we hear reaction to the governor's State of the State address. What did you think of this speech? Record something. Call our talk back line 808-792-8217. Look for the Conversation Podcast on our website or on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast store. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.